0: Welcome to the Faith Today Podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. To read her is to love her. To interview her is to start to think you should really hang out soon. Dr. Kate Bowler is a New York Times best-selling author, a podcast host, and a professor at Duke University. She's also Canadian, and we claim her. When she was just 35, Kate was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer, In her first memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, Kate walks us through that diagnosis and its aftermath and explores the faith, friendship, love, and endurance found living in the new reality of cancer. Now we have no cure for being human and other truths I need to hear, Kate's latest book. It's a book about long, hard recovery and grappling with a live your best life now culture When you've walked in suffering, Kate is a grappler. She's also written more academic books, of course, on the prosperity gospel and about women in evangelical subculture. But I think it's her spiritual memoirs that are reaching a hurting world. I'm Karen Stiller, and you'll know why I say that as you listen to this interview. Kate, let's start with a scene in your book that I think is so symbolic of the work that you're doing when you're in the hospital bookstore in your gown with the thing.
1: (laughs) Hi, people. (laughs) Yes.
0: Removing toxic books from the shelves in the hospital. Tell us about that.
1: I was so helpful, just unbeknownst to this poor hospital bookstore manager. They let you practice walking before they let you go home. And then I was just sort of, without permission, began exploring the hallways. And I walked past the hospital bookstore, which had just a giant display of books that as a historian, I had studied for such a long time. It was the sort of Joel Osteen, best life now, or every day a Friday, or and a wide variety of people representing the prosperity gospel, which is the belief that God wants to give you health and wealth and happiness. And I had been, I thought, a very reasonably gentle observer of that movement for such a long time. And then suddenly when I, my life was the one that was taken apart and I'm standing in my very sad drafty hospital gown, I was just, I just felt outrage. So I wandered in and um, just started helpfully taking it apart, putting some on the floor, deciding which ones should go where until the hospital bookstore manager came out and was like, ma'am. And I was like, look, I'm not trying to be terrifying. I do work here. No, not in this hospital. I work here at Duke University. And I swear, I am an expert in this thing. But like, you can't sell, you can't sell this to me. Yeah. And uh, and she was like, oh, it was a, it. but it's a New York Times bestseller, which is a reasonable thing to say. And I was like, you, we need to understand that these books blame patients like me for our own illness. So by the end of our long exchange, uh, she did let me write a like a list of what i deemed to be theologically appropriate replacements but when i uh, when i walked past next time it had, the the display had been reassembled with more Joel Osteen books with uh, with a title something like you can you will
0: <laughs> oh dear yeah that is um not what you need to read when you're ill you're really pushing back on this idea that everything happens for a reason this idea yeah. that god has a plan for all this pain so what are we talking about when we talk about God's plan for our lives in a good way? What's the most helpful way to think about that?
1: Yeah. Cuz the 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 desire to apply like a lesson to a tragedy seems to me to be a very normal one. At least it was in my experience. When I when I first got sick, I was inundated with People trying to explain to me God's plan, God's formula, the best spiritual way for me to get through this. And and a lot of it went I there's a, a couple different kinds of arguments for it. It was um God is good and therefore, you know, your suffering ought to be overcomable by if you just increase your faith, or um, this is just a, a test that God is giving you in order to overcome, or or you know, or God is good, and therefore, um, don't worry, this is temporary, and so heaven will be wonderful. One of the reasons why I am so grateful to be a Christian is that it gives me a deep uh, well of of love and hope. But I, you you know, when you're being lied to, you just do. And I, uh, there is not a version in which a, a fellow Christian could give me in which my toddler's life could be as good if I wasn't his mom. And so I just found that the um the sort of like standing like job's friends just kind of standing beside God, rationalizing God's actions was trite and it felt cruel, frankly. I found for those who are kind of fall more on the like on the reformed, Everything is preordained in our life side of the theological equation. I have so much love and theological respect for that. My sense, though, is just from where I'm standing, if God has a determined plan for my life, I can't know it in that moment. And certainly if I knew it, it wouldn't make it wouldn't make mortality less painful. Like God has given us these ridiculous, beautiful lives, but not ever guaranteed that it will somehow be less painful if we somehow know the spiritual reasons for things.
0: Yeah, yeah. My husband, who's an Anglican priest, likes to say cheery things like, well, we're all dispensable and (laughs) why not me? You know, which is why I hand him your books because I know he'll enjoy them so much. But oh, Brent, that's a wonder.
1: (laughs) I just love it. That's so great.
0: But it's not like what people want to hear, except it is kind of what they need slash want to hear when they're in situations like you were in, right?
1: Yeah. I think that mortality, the idea that we're just fragile and we're finite is now culturally awkward to say we're inundated with all these messages that say that we're invincible and we just need to forge ahead. And unfortunately Christianity has become begun to to parrot a lot of that self-mastery language. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most loving things we can say is that we are we are deeply beloved by God, but we are not indestructible. And like accepting that fragility is also part of the work I think God gives us.
0: Kate, as I read your books, um, as I read Everything Happens for a Reason and now No Cure for Being Human, it struck me though that you are turning through your own beauty and gifts and generosity hard things into really helpful insights, lessons, help, friendship for other people who are suffering. What does that mean to you? That feels like the I've always wanted there to be like a deep
1: theological hospitality for the suffering that we wouldn't feel strange anymore or lonely or embarrassed or a little ridiculous. So I remember when I first got sick that that was the overwhelming feeling was loneliness. That all of a sudden I was on some other planet and and partly that's I think the narcissism of pain where you're just convinced that you're the only one suffering but I think the rest of it was the cultural response is that is that your is that it is somehow weird for for all of us to to know our own limits so the fact that other all I've wanted to do is create more language and maybe a gentler place for all those of us who are living in the afters of a before and after and i think frankly that will just that is a category that will include all of us at some point. So I, it feels like just saying, hey, you know, welcome home.
0: And I mean, I'm thinking with uh, the aftermath of the pandemic, we're still kind of in it. That message must resonate with people that life does actually hang by a thread. Yeah, most of I mean,
1: the contingency of our lives is is so absurd. The idea that we would mostly be you know, defined by things we don't choose. That that felt probably strange to even think two years ago, but now that all of a sudden our lives went into lockdown and deferral, I think it's it's easier to imagine. I think the only thing though that it makes us extra susceptible to though right now is returning to that sort of inflated. I can barely catch my breath. I just need to go back and and make up for lost time feeling. It's such a normal feeling when we go through something really hard is to want to like sprint back to the person we were before, but people say totally not so unhelpful things in a moment like this. They say crazy stuff like um nothing is lost. That is that is wildly untrue. I mean, we lose things all the time, and I think it's okay to grieve our losses. And if we because if we can't just say they were gone, you know, our time, our plans, our ability to be with the people we wanted to be with, like these last couple years have been marked by loss. More cultural honesty about that, I think, would make people feel like they're at least being realism, I think, sets us up for the courage we need. But without it, I think we can feel a little like we're forced into constant denial.
0: Yeah. And constant cheer. I'd love to talk about that that before we stray too far from this, this idea of your best life now and how oppressive that can be. But I think it's really prevalent in things for Christian women, conferences and webinars and, um, you know, symposiums and that the title of them are always in all caps i've noticed and <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> i always feel if i go i feel like i'm the grumpiest most cynical person there but i always <laughs> find someone else in the back row which is great but why are we uh, why do we market that stuff to christian women in particular do you think yeah.
1: oh wow well because because optimism looks a lot like faithfulness now okay and our theologies, our Instagram theologies have mostly been marketed and then born by women. And that is, man, the gendered work there of being confident and put together and a joyful multitasker. And thanks so much for asking me. I'm so honored for that invitation. And I'd love to bring cookies to the PTA. I mean, the the emotional work, the, the hustle, 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 emotional hustle is largely been been saddled on women. And so this gospel of optimism and best life now, I think has been kind of unevenly placed on, um, women. And and gosh, the, the faith piece does just make me nuts. I wrote a, a history of Christian women kind of mostly basically since, you know, ordination, but especially after world war II. And so much of it is, is, is that they they then not don't just have to be cheerful, but they also have to be beautiful and demonstrate ease and like never let them let. And if you're frazzled, it's in a hilarious way, <laughs> right. not like i I'm actually breaking down yeah. and I need I need to be sustained by others way. So I think we've kind of culturally conditioned women out of out of honesty, especially in churches.
0: That's true. The whole I'm a hot mess. Um, thing can sometimes ironically not seem authentic either
1: yeah because our messes I remember um When I was first trying to write uh, terrible, terrible stories when I was little, I always had this really plucky character who had a very powerful relationship with her horse. And, um, but I I remember my sister was like, oh, you've got to give her a flaw. So I give her like one thin, slender scar. And I, (laughs) later on, when I was interviewing, you know, female mega church celebrities for that Christian women's book, I, I found that we all just had that same tendency to like pick a tiny, tiny flaw like oh i yelled at my kids in a bank one time and the stuff that people are usually struggling with is um grief over a miscarriage a relationship they still mourn uh, a relationship they can't find that still find themselves in kids with special needs kids in pandemic learning the burden of uh, an app called seesaw that i still can't find the code for it is wild how precious moments we've kind of tried to make our flaws but the truth is we're, we like we actually come undone and and if we don't really know that about each other then we we really can't come alongside and be the be the people we need
0: to be yes i would just like to say that i have a vast Precious moments collection <laughs> that I have held on to for years, th- thinking, th- thinking they would someday be worth money, oh, but so, they're not.
1: But uh, emotionally, <laughs> so valuable. reminds <laughs> me I'm so. Karen, I love it. I really hope you go to the Precious Moments Chapel someday, <laughs> which is a real and haunting place. Send me a I've picture you go. I have
0: read about it. Um, you write beautifully in little drops about the local church. You include moments with pastors and bishops and friends praying for you. You allude to the church. I'd love for you to talk about how your relationship with the local church, how the church can help in times like what you've lived through,
1: yeah, wow. Well, especially now, I mean, they they call those um, sort of light, voluntary associations we'd have with people weak ties, right? And that we, and then the pandemic, it was kind of the death of all weak ties. And for me, the church is one of the best things about it is that it is a strong tie. It is people who feel wonderfully obligated to you and your problems and your emergencies and. They will be the people that bring you food, whether you like it or offer to take you to the hospital. Or for me, I had to go weekly to the airport for medical travel. And I did not have any family in the United States. And it was absolutely terrifying to think that my family couldn't make it through the next couple of years without somebody feeling obligated. And um, I get so emotional, honestly, thinking about all the people who just like popped up. And that's the church, like the churches, that's their A game, because that's also God's A game is drawing near to the suffering. And so um, one of the great shockers of my life is that I would have to be carried by people that I I didn't even have to know that well, or didn't have to agree with on much, but that um, our love, our love would just need a lot of traction mostly because our, our lives, as they are, are always unsustainable. So that's been one of the great uh, privileges of both teaching at a seminary where I get to get to know pastors in their formation and then and then the other professors who have way more pastoral experience than I do, and then my adorable local Methodist churches who, who continue to um, be the most – Hilarious ca- casserole culture I've ever met. They were like <laughs> second to Mennonites in the like. I think I should scale this food. I think we need ten times this amount.
0: Yeah, Thanks yeah, yeah. You have a great allusion to that in your in your book about the ability to cook for one hundred.
1: Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a oh my gosh. I I'm so I, I work at Dick Divinity School and I was like guys, I will be part of Team Methodist, but you have to let me be. Part of Team Mennonite when I'm at home because they the things they do with Jello and, and buns <laughs> it's really remarkable.
0: Yeah, the church potluck is a beautiful thing. In terms of your teaching of future pastors and your interaction with them, how have your experiences changed how you do that? What you're teaching?
1: Yeah, well, because I as a historian, I'm um I'm a cultural historian, so I mostly study cultural scripts and. I was very like cards to the chest before when I was like, well, guys, you will never know what I really think because that is the work of history. And I still teach kind of most of a course that way. But at the end, I feel a tremendous responsibility to have the hard moral grappling is to teach in such a way that they will have to put these conclusions to the test. So right now I'm teaching a history the prosperity gospel and we have this really fun—if I can just compliment my own class—assignment <laughs> called the like not prosperity, prosperity gospel, where they have to like find it, find it in nature. So like in Peloton or in the way they advertise MBAs or in Lula, you know, Lularoe, the legging company. And it's been wonderful to see them be cultural interpreters, so that we can all learn how to understand the prosperity, best life now water that we swim in. But. Um, But mostly, honestly, what what awes me is the fact that they will do dozens of funerals within the first couple years of their ministry. They they will stand there beside a coffin and say and have to learn to say true things there and the way they have done often as volunteer chaplains during the pandemic. And that is a wisdom that is a hard one wisdom that I that makes me realize that has to be true all the time. You know what I mean? Like whatever we say it can't just be true at a wedding. It has right. to be able to be true at a hospital bedside. And I I try to maybe teach toward that now.
0: You know, I remember again my husband in seminary and you think you think it's going to be one thing and it ends up being something very different. And yeah, standing standing at the funeral, that's that's where a lot of the work happens.
1: My friend Will, who's a Methodist bishop, he has too much. I mean, he has more charisma than is responsible for a single person. He's so charismatic. <laughs> it's, but the way he, the way he loves me, the way he shows up for me, the way he's, um, has that sort of tender touch with my parents, but is willing to stand there while the IV gets put in. There's a bravery there. I think that isn't just um, unique to pastors, but it's a uh, to so many kinds of people, caregivers and. Any good friend where there's um where they can look at you and not be afraid of your pain even though they know they can't solve it. And I think that's my favorite my favorite kind of person.
0: Showing up, right? The person who shows up. Kate, you're on the Today show recently and I watched the clip and there's this wonderful moment where they're filming you and your son, he's saying the alphabet, he says Z, and then you say or Z. <laughs> Yeah, the education never starts too soon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just thought that's a classic (laughs) Canadian moment, um, (laughs) correcting the Z to Z. So I would love, you know, this is a big question, but just some of the differences it feels, and I think Canadians can be smug about this, but between Canadian evangelicalism and American evangelicalism, if you could comment on that a little.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. I remember the first time I was introduced to Canadian evangelicalism and be- being given American magazines. And I, you know, I saw Focus on the Family magazine in the bathroom of a Baptist home. And I thought, oh, this is very concerned about the flag. <laughs> and then um, I joined that e- lovely evangelical group inner school Christian fellowship. And I remember they had this thing where they wanted us to pray around the, fl- the flagpole and none of us knew why. And that to me was the first clue that there's uh, these really organic differences between Popular Canadian and American faith, and one thing that is very different is that Canadians lack a civil religion. Is we lack a a Christian account of the founding of our nation and 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 put a, a drop a big anchor there. And I find that absolutely freeing. Frankly, is that um, we can believe that there is much at stake in the, our moral adjudications. That we, the story of faith is going to be a story that is a lot longer than the founding of a country. And it will also, I hope, run counter to this American gospel that grew up in the late 19th century, which became the foundation of its beliefs in, um, in positive thought. Is I mean, we do have a bit of a go for bronze attitude, which I frankly love. I I mean, we're we're like we're not we're like not reaching for excellence, and I I kind of think that is temperamentally fantastic because it, it what it does is it inoculates us against this um, obsession with the idea that God only loves our winning, that God only lo- rewards and loves our, our victorious faith. And to just kind of separate out that feeling that in our our belovedness is really not connected to our our performance, and I think those are two things I really appreciate.
0: Yeah, when you were researching the pastor's wife and uh, you know writing it and just the work you do now, I feel like being a Canadian might help you. <laughs> do you? Do you? I, t- I totally do. <laughs> I'm like, hey, 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 what are we, what are we doing here?
1: <laughs> is this, oh, this is surprising. Um, yeah, I think, well, I think it maybe it's, it's helped me on two sides is um, one, I do feel like I'm an outsider trying to create which I think means like when I was writing, for instance, the, so I wrote the first history of the prosperity gospel, which meant I was trying to figure out, like map the whole movement. Um, and I, I knew then that I want, oh, I wanted to use terms that describe it, like the big sacred umbrella of it without just focusing on televangelists and their private jets. or So I, I, I think being an outsider has helped me try to always ask, what renders this faith meaningful? And I think that's made me a better historian. I think the other uh, thing though, is I I did immediately assume that all bad, (laughs) this is terrible. I did assume that all bad ideas are inherently American. So when I when I discovered that my hometown of Winnipeg, Manitoba had Canada's largest megachurch and that it was run by a pastor who had just been given a motorcycle by his congregation for a holiday called Pastor's Appreciation Day, I was like, I was like, no, 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 that's for Americans. And I told everybody, but I was wrong. It's for Canadians too. And wow. so it's, I've learned a lot about how faiths can be exported to other countries and kind of grow their own roots. And it has made me a lot less smug, I think.
0: Interesting. About, uh, about it. Yeah, I feel like that's very un Canadian to give your pastor a motorcycle. Canadians in in my experience completely ignore Pastors Appreciation Month.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh yeah, I mean, it does kind of blow my mind that, that Canadians will use the phrase best life now, which is a yeah. term coined by an American televangelist, but it shows us how we have to kind of keep uh, questioning the terms that we're given in our faith. We have to con- consistently ask, is this uh, the story of Jesus of Nazareth, or did I just accidentally pick this up on TV?
0: Yeah. Kate, in the in your book, uh, you have this beautiful moment, and I can't remember if it's w- Will or not. It might have been Will, your friend who prays for you as you're going into surgery, and they say, God, if you please keep this one alive. Her best work is yet to come, which was so so beautiful and so i wanted as we end to ask you what is to come for you with your work what i feel like you're doing your best work right now but you're probably Aww. not there's it's probably just going to get better tell me what, <laughs> what what your plans are
1: i guess i i've been kind of exploring how to be um, loving anti self-help presence in the world and so just undoing the undoing the the hard Burden of of perfectibility is something I think a lot about. So I wrote like a little devotional book called "Good Enough," which just made me laugh because, like, what kind of faith should you should we have? No faith that's good enough. So I, I've just been trying to think about um, how to live into this place of interdependence and um, acknowledgement of our fragility, and a lot less perfectionism, and how to step into like a little bit more love. So think that's kind of the
0: work I want to do. Kate, thank you so, so much.
1: Karen, you're such a gift. Thank you for this.
0: Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.